0: Steve Price. Steve Price.
1: Hey, hey, Steve.
0: Shock jock Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is that, right. Well,
1: Steve joins us
0: now. Helen McCabe, our on-the-record guest this episode was never going to be your typical editor-in-chief of the Australian Women's Weekly. From featuring the inspirational Taria Pitt, the Burns survivor on a front cover, to the controversial Prime Minister Julia Gillard knitting photograph... Hers has to be an extraordinary media career. Thank you so much. Now, this is spooky. I can't remember the last time that I went out and bought the Women's Weekly at a supermarket, right? So I did that this morning, knowing that I was going to have a chat with you. It's Mm -hmm. the October edition. It Mm -hmm. cost me $7.50. And guess who's on the cover?
1: Well, I think it's Cherea Pitt.
0: You think, right, it is Taria Pitt. Now, isn't that <laughs> unusual? Because it, it, doing some research on you this morning, I discovered, of course, that in 2014, in July 2014, so six and a bit years ago, you put Taria Pitt on the cover of the Women's Weekly.
1: Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because I was chatting to Bryce Corbett this morning, uh, and he told me that she was on the cover and he went on, he worked with me on that cover and then he went on to write one of her books and she's got a new book coming out. So that's how I know that. Yeah, it was, oh, there's many things I could say about this. It's really interesting to watch the trend now, uh, to do what I call ordinary people or ordinary stroke celebrities. Uh, they're not, they're not, uh, famous because they were an actor or a model or went into that usual uh, fame route, but became celebrities unwittingly uh, and normal people on the covers. And there's nothing normal about Taria, uh, and I can talk about her for quite some time, but it is now quite acceptable. I noticed though UK, I think, put a frontline health worker, like a everyday frontline. She was about 35. She was in her in her nurse's outfit uh, on the cover. And I was just standing in the news, I think, just staring at that. And that was the sort of stuff I was talking about back mm. then because the celebrity world had uh, changed so much. And people were bored with it. They were bored with the same covers. And so the challenge when I was editor of Women's Weekly was to try and find that spark, that that surprising cover. And none was more surprising than than Charia Pitts.
0: Well, she's on the cover this time because she's talking about being a mum and, and how it's changed her life. But if you go back, I mean, six years is not that long ago. In 2014, you would think, well, what, would that be such a surprising decision given the inspirational story that Taria is? I mean, of course, she survived those dreadful burns when she was running in that ultra marathon. Um, but for you back then, you copped some criticism and. You had some healthy critiques from people. I think the then Governor or former Governor-General Quinton Bryce rang you. Your mum had an opinion on it. Why was it so (laughs) controversial? Uh,
1: Look, I think there were a couple of strands. Um, The traditional media, sorry, the traditional magazine market had boxed itself into a hole around the concept of what fame and beauty should be, and when what would work? We can talk about Black Lives Matter, for instance, as well. In that space, there were very strict rules, and Korea didn't fit any of them, and so it was quite surprising to put someone who had been severely disfigured in that dreadful accident, but. I'm going to say a couple of things about that. One was she, she was not unattractive. It's an incredibly beautiful image. And that's something that sits with me forever because I think there are great lessons for people who feel unattractive or feel about like, like longer legs or, you know, be 10 kilos lighter. And, you know, Taria is just a walking, talking example of what beauty actually means. But I remember Robin Foister, who was the editor of The Weekly Performing, me, stopping me at an event and saying congratulations on that cover. It was an incredibly inspiring and brave thing to do. Uh, and so my critics were using brave in that – Robin wasn't – but critics were using brave in that sort of Sir Humphrey, um, uh, yes minister kind of way, assuming it wouldn't work. Uh, but my fans were saying someone needed to do something different and Robin made that point. And I remember looking at her and saying, it actually wasn't that surprising a decision or nor was it that brave. I had the image. I had the relationship with Taria. I had a cover for July that was empty. We could put another well-known Australian woman on the cover and, and I you know, won't do them a disservice by naming them, but we all know who are the regulars on the cover of Women's Weekly. Or I could try something different, and I think most editors of the weekly at that point probably would have made the same decision that I made. And, but that's not to say the day that it came out. No, the day before we kind of set it to the printing presses, there was a last-minute flurry from upstairs. Are you sure? Uh, which I I stared down with the with the help of the EA to the. Boss at the time, uh, never never underestimate the value of an EA in those situations. But I I was flying to and I'm going to say also very important in this was Mia Friedman, who came out very early and backed it really strongly uh, because it was to the heart of what she's been saying about magazines for a long time. But I flew to Melbourne to host an event for ovarian cancer at the Crown Casino, and I was on the plane. You know those sort of contemplative moments you get on a plane. And I just thought, oh, if this doesn't work, people are really going to be paying for blood over it. And I got off the plane and the CEO, who was a lovely bloke by the name of Matt Stanton, rang me and said, I'm ringing to tell you that the numbers are up. Now, when the numbers are up... uh, (laughs) What happens if the numbers
0: were down? Would he be of such a (laughs) lovely bloke then?
1: uh, Well, you know, he... He was actually he would he did actually the whole way through on some of the more um, controversial decisions that I made. But and he also understood they had to try things different. You had to do different things. Different things. You know you just we had to keep testing the the, the market. But uh, as did the Bowers by the way. But I um but I was more worried about Korea, Like she'd just gone into an operation that night when the magazine was coming out and it started to leak out. People, you know, news agents had started to see the cover, etc. And um, she'd just gone into another bout of surgery. I, I forget the number, It'd be, you know, surgery number 30 or something. And um, I really felt for her, like, if, it, if the number's been poor, imagine imagine having to be center of attention for nobody wanting to read your story <laughs> or look at you. Um, and that I felt enormous responsibility for that, and there was an incorrect report in one of the newspapers. And one of the few times I've reached out to an editor to say that story's wrong, I think it's the only time I really reached out. It was on that, and they corrected it. So, uh, but it was a, it was a great sale and a great result. And it's interesting to see it, you know, all these years later, and see it on the cover again. Um, it just goes to show that that was successful with the cover, and mm-hmm. It'll always be successful to some extent as a story because she really captured the heart of this country, as she should. I mean, I, do you know anyone braver or with a more inspiring story than Terea Pitt? I mean, the fact that she's gone on and had two babies—it's—it's unimaginable to her surgeons and to the people that love her, in particularly Michael, who was very reticent in the early days because he knew the extent of her injuries, but her determination is. Yeah, it's just mind blowing, and she is, she is an absolute inspiration.
0: She is an inspiration. Was it hard to convince her to do it?
1: Well, no, you know, here's the other thing no, her the, the reason why she's had two babies run those extreme marathons, you know, when you run for 48 hours, the ones that Tony Abbott does, is because she sees the world from a completely different perspective from mere mortals. Uh, and she... Totally owned everything about her situation, and I, I remember the very first day I met her. We were doing a, a shoot, and then it turned out to be the shoot we used on the cover. We only had one frame of her; only the one, the one image, because she wasn't the main focus of that story. She signed a she signed a a, uh, a contract with sixty minutes, and so she wasn't really allowed to do any other media. But um, Tom Malone allowed her to do this particular thing uh he was at at that point the 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 um executive producer of 60 minutes so i was always grateful to tom for that and she came to the shoot and by the time i got there she was in the makeup chair and sitting next to her is jennifer hawkins now no one wants to sit next to jennifer hawkins in in a makeup chair like she's one of the most beautiful women i've ever seen in real life like on TV and, and photograph yes but in real life it's another level of beauty <laughs> but Taria is sitting there absolutely loving the attention and chatting about her hair and the beautiful makeup artist is saying oh, she had beautiful hair and she goes yeah I do have beautiful hair and she just had this innate sense of confidence that you you, you are born with and it's probably developed by your upbringing it, it just it just shone through and within – and I remember we talked about this on the weekly forever. From the minute you met her, you knew that she was beautiful. She was beautiful as a person and she was beautiful looking and she owned that camera. And in that shoot, she was in the middle of the room. She had uh, Lisa Wilkinson was on one side, Penny Wong was on another, Jennifer Hawkins, uh, and she owned the shoot. I think even Lee Sales was there. and um, Pretty
0: high high-powered group.
1: Yeah, it was a very, it was a yeah, it was a big um, scholarship program that we were uh, we've launched and we're running and and Taria just, if she'd been off to a school. She came from the shoot from a school and she'd been given, you know, been given a, a talk to kids and you know, again, imagine walking. She only recently revealed her face to the, you know, to the nation when she unmasked with the compression mask that she wore. Probably a year or more, Uh, and you know, then she's giving talks to school kids. The the confidence and the innate sense of self worth that she carries is phenomenal. And whenever I would go into meetings with beauty clients, I would always kind of have her in my mind. That beauty is not about, you know, it's all very cliched, but I hope I'm sounding more relevant than that. That it really. There really is something about carrying yourself with confidence and believing in yourself, and not being, not allowing yourself to become a victim to the modern world that says tall, wrinkle-free, uh, long hair, white skin—all of those things. Uh, they're it's a very outdated model of beauty.
0: You make a point in an interview I read with you that you only had 12 editions of the weekly. We'll get back to the weekly. We'll come back to it, but. You only had 12 12 times a year to to make those decisions. How hard were they?
1: Sleepless nights
0: about working out what you're going to put on the cover?
1: Yeah, and look, everyone's an expert too. Uh, So everyone had a view. Um, And I've I've said publicly before uh, there's not really a lot of room for favouritism or personal um, uh, alignment. You are so judged by those numbers. That you study every aspect of the data to kind of work out what your readership wants, and then you deliver what it wants. And there were cases where there were like line ball covers. You know, the was one was greater, another one was a little bit edgier and different, or a bit younger, or a bit older. And you couldn't make a decision. You only, or it would send it to um, to research, which would be a, an online, you know, group that were aligned to the weekly, and we would ask them what they thought. But you only ever sent the covers that were not obvious to research. Like, you know, a great cover and a great get. So you get Princess Mary, which we did for the 80th birthday and we shot her in her palace in Denmark. You didn't need to send that to research. Uh, but quite often it was line ball. And the problem, and you know, one of the reasons, you know, Future Women is the business I'm doing now, doing what I'm doing is because we had elevated only a handful of women to the status of a woman's weekly cover in this country. There just wasn't enough volume of people. So for example, we put Michelle Bridges on the cover for the first time and I had that awful experience of going into research groups that were being set up by the company and listening to one focus group after after mother telling me that, oh, yeah, no, it's kind of great, but I didn't know who she was. <laughs> you know, Michelle Bridges was one of the most successful female entrepreneurs in the country at that point. I think there was something like $50 million or something she was valued at, uh, and she was training, you know, everyday Australian women all over Australia and we think been talking about everywhere, but it still wasn't enough. Unless you're Rebecca Gibney or Tracy Grimshaw, you know, you you don't capture the entire – nation uh, and that was what we had to try and do and in the previous years of Women's Weekly when some of my predecessors were editing, they could announce the arrival of a Michelle Bridges um, or it or um, I'm thinking of some of the others that we did that were a bit less obvious but in the current era and, and the constraints that the editor works under now you don't have that luxury, you don't have the audience that just is sticks with you month in, month out, and just buys the week because that's what you do. Now they can be far more fickle, and, uh, you know, they can, they, they worry about how they spend their money. Uh, and they're now, you know, they're increasingly an older audience. So the relevance of some of the younger female stars, if you think about young female entrepreneurs now, M- 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 Kayla things comes to mind. She's often in the pages of the financial review. Would she make? She would certainly not work as a cover of *The Weekly* for, for probably another five to ten years, by which time she might have decided to, you know, back out of public life. But yeah, it's it's a it it was a very very difficult decision every month. And unless you felt it, and unless you agonised over it, if you started to get complacent, uh, which I could feel towards the end of my time, uh, that you know that's when it's, that is that is when it's time to go.
0: What I find exciting about the current edition I've got here, apart from reading the inspirational story again of Tahrir, is uh, new recipes from Jamie Oliver and Maggie Beer. That's what made me buy it. Um, Now.
1: (laughs) Well, that's the case. and I mean, it was the case I was editing, and it'll be the case forevermore,
0: yeah. I'll be cooking a Jamie Oliver meal tonight. Don't worry about that. As I said (laughs) uh, at the beginning of our chat, you grew up in South Australia, and your parents were farmers. But like a lot of country kids, you went to boarding school in South Australia. Was that a good or a bad experience? Uh,
1: well, my family had never sent um, – I was the first in my family to go to boarding school and it wasn't uh, compulsory. I had I had an option because I originally sort of said, no, nah, I don't want to do this. I was quite enjoying Riverton High School. Um, but I – Came around to the idea that if I wanted to, I guess, experience all that life has on offer, that probably jumping into boarding school and going to Adelaide was probably a good thing to do. Um, I, I think in retrospect, the first few terms were a bit tricky in, in year nine because I went halfway through the term, but I ultimately absolutely loved it and, uh, after I sort of got over the, the culture shock of going from, you know, a co-ed, you know, knockabout, rough and ready kind of environment in a country town uh, and into a very, you know, upmarket all-girls school in Adelaide, uh, I I really did make the most of it and am a big advocate for single-sex education insofar as it influences the lives of young women. I think there's a lot to be said for it. I think I learned, I learned, better and more and applied myself much harder to academic success than I would have done if I'd stayed in a co-ed, you know, country high school.
0: But a lot of those, a lot of those young women would have been country girls as well. I mean, uh, one of my daughters uh, went to ANU's just finishing this year. One of the great yep. things about going to ANU was that it was a, a catch-all for uh, smart young women from right around the country, many of them from farming communities who came and lived at uh, at university in boarding school, and she met just great people uh, who, because of yes. of, of, uh, of doing that. And, I mean, that's you must have met great people because a lot of them would have great had a lot people. in common with you.
1: Great people, and you know, to this day, someone sent me a note. I've been working with this um, production company in Melbourne called Fancy Films, doing our podcast. And Karen Mussels, the founder, and she just this message last week going, just discovered that you went to Loretto, Marriottville. I went to Loretto, Marriottville between these years and then I transferred to Normanhurst. And that happened to me, um, pretty regularly. I have spoken at a few Loretto events, um, for national things and extraordinary, you know, Catherine Griner and um, Sheila McGregor and, um, the CEO of Core Logic. you know, all these people come out of the woodwork and, it is a it's not a really someone to say you can't really call it an old girls network it doesn't quite have the same ring as an old boys <laughs> network but but no, it is no. but it, but it is a supportive uh, and there's a, there's an understanding we were taught by the nuns um the Institute of blessed, blessed Virgin Mary we all have enormous affection for that order and respect for them there is no doubt that the feminism of the nuns has You know, implanted itself in my DNA and, um, and probably painfully for some people that have, you know, worked with me over the years, but it led to what I'm doing now. So at all levels, both boarding school, I mean, there's nothing better than country kids, you know, love them. And I have my closest friend to this day is an artist in Adelaide. You would have met her through me on a few trips, um, at the Metropole Hotel, uh, there in Gujar Street. Uh, Sonia Peterson and uh, she was a boarder with me and the other boarders, the McCarthy girls and um, Anne Reid, you know I can name them and they'll be friends forever
0: It's funny isn't it, my mate Sam Newman who went to Timber Top at Geelong Grammar uh, who's now in his you know late 70s or mid 70s sorry Sam, about that age, uh, he can still recite uh, from A to Z every boy who was at Timber Top in the year he went every one of them it's a weird party
1: yeah. trick. Yeah. Well, I mean, that really goes to Sam, right? And probably yeah. one of the nicest party tricks I've heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sam. Yeah. I've never met you. Um, But I, I, I yeah, the, there are, I wanted great, there's a girl who was an Olympic swimmer. Her name's Anna McFann. Uh, she, all her hopes for the country were on her at the LA Olympics. And she was in my year at Laredo. and. She was like the, the center of the universe in Adelaide, big family. And then she married a Farmer and moved to Claire. So I had these funny Christmases where I drive up to Claire and meet her four kids and her farmer husband where she's sort of living the life I should have been leading. And I'm kind of living the hot point, you know, high socioeconomic, you know, massively densely populated, uh, life that she, she had sort of been destined for. But we nevertheless, you know, she'll just bring, she so be driving from Claire to, Adelaide for what kids' sport, and she'll just wing and it doesn't matter what's happened in either of our lives time is you know not a thing it's just a great connection so yeah, yeah boarding schools have varying degrees of popularity and I know that there's you know in some circles where I mention I think people think I was a victim of child abuse and that explains, <laughs> that explains some of my you know drive or uh, work obsession, but it's not. It was. It was just one of the best things that could have ever happened to me, and um, I'm incredibly grateful. And I've got nieces and nephews all through boarding schools of uh, Adelaide now, and they're having a similar experience. Although it's a lot nicer now than it was when we were there. Like we were, it was pretty strict when I was there.
0: How shattering? I mean, I want to get onto your media career in a minute, in a sec. But how shattering was it for you as a, a Catholic, educated and and raised uh, Australian when? the Catholic Church allegations about child sexual abuse came out. It must have been – is it even harder for a Catholic to to, to hear about yes. that stuff than a, than, yes. than a non-Catholic?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And I have many, many thoughts on this and, you know, I, I can talk about it for quite a long time. Um, you know, I'm a massive supporter of the church and uh, you, you'll never get me – being critical of it in a sense, but I found there other than this area um, because i, I look, let me put it another way it's very easy to overlook the tens of thousands of volunteers, often women, who keep churches, schools, nursing homes, homeless shelters um uh women's shelters um food kitchens kitchens open uh with the support of the Catholic church uh and so then to no do one that, else so wants let, to
0: do that work right
1: no one else wants to do that work and uh I think Julia bed actually is really good at this in her book, you know actually identifying the army of women that support these churches, whether it be Catholic or whatever uh, and, and it's almost expected that they'll do it but And I'm not one of them, you know, and and I say that with some shame, that I don't find the time. But to then be so let down by the time and time and time again uh, is just devastating. And then to see the pendulum swing to a situation where people like Archbishop Philip Wilson and Cardinal Pell become lightning rods for decades of child sex abuse and the impact that that then has on the church and is still having on the church. Um, I'm just going to assume that there's some, you know, sense will be made out of all this uh, eventually, but I was at the St. Patrick's, uh, St. Mary's Cathedral for a Saturday night mass recently and I don't reckon there were 100 people there. Mm. And pre-COVID, there would have been, I guess, you know, there might have been 500. Um, so I don't know, and I haven't done any research on this or talked to, and I've got priests who are personal friends, I haven't actually asked them about this, but I don't know what COVID doing, but the combination of the two things um, must be very alarming because those churches an enormous upkeep, let alone you know, the, as I say, all of the good work that goes on around them.
0: So how does like
1: – No one's going, no one's saying. No,
0: actually. exactly. So how does a young Helen McCabe from Hamley Bridge get from uh, Loretto to TV news?
1: Uh, Naively. I think if I knew what I, <laughs> I knew now, I might be. I mean, I, I find well, if you knew that, what you
0: knew now, you might have stayed there and not, <laughs> not
1: going, <changed. laughs> not, not going in Hamley Street. But <laughs> well, the rest of my family is quite happily, and there's no COVID there either. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, look, I, um, you know, it's pretty obvious as a as a as a 50 year old, I can see the trajectory quite obviously. But I went and did a journalism degree. I was super super keen to be a journalist. I just thought it was the most exciting thing ever and was single-minded about getting in, get in. And then, of course, you know, the television network take one or two people, uh, and I was, you know, pretty much central casting, blonde, and straight... I mean, it wasn't quite this simple. I did lots of other bits and pieces, but, you know, straight to Channel 7, and I was very interested in politics. So by the time I was 22, I was in Canberra covering politics. And, again, that sounds quite quick and amazing, but it wasn't really. It was... Kind of pretty obvious, and your career would have looked much the same if you're a if you're a really
0: didn't matter enthusiastic- that I wasn't blonde.
1: <laughs> so, like, if you're a super enthusiastic person about life and curious about it, how everything works, and you think Canberra and politics is the most amazing thing, you do sort of stand out, and you're a little bit like pucky in the hands of. Producers, bosses, and they know they can throw you at any kind of, you know, hard assignment and you'll give it your all. And I've done that to, I can name the reporters that I did that to. Sherry Markson comes to mind immediately. So, um, I, I, I very quickly got to Canberra and I just absolutely thrived. I just loved the Canberra environment and Paul Keating was Prime Minister when I got there and, and then John Howard. And, uh, and it was just a very exciting way to, you know, have it to spend your 20s. I mean, no nightclubs, um, not a very new youth. Uh, I worked very hard, but I, you know, I, I saw a lot and made incredible friendships and contacts in that period, which has also stood me in good stead.
0: It's funny, isn't it? I mean, people will say, oh, it's just a couple of South Australians talking, but people from uh, from Adelaide who moved interstate to work in media most of them that I know you included have been super successful because I think we were all a little desperate to prove that if you came out of South Australia you could be as good as anyone else
1: it's an, it is a, people have asked me this a lot and we can put you know the Phil Curry, Annabelle Crabs, David um Samantha Maiden, uh, I mean Phil, um, David Koch, uh uh, Michael Suchbury, Clive Matheson, it goes on and on and on. And those names for the people who aren't media junkies are all at the very top uh, of their profession. Idiots, people asked me before what is about Adelaide that has done that. I do think that small town and our ambition to see out, see the world outside of that small town is something, I think the one thing South Australians all have in common, particularly the journalism, is we love food and we love wine. You mentioned the long lunch. And we love the sociable nature of journalism. So I I kind of feel that that always stood us in great stead. You know, we were used to laugh about the Queenslanders. The Queenslanders would have a feed and that would be a forex and a pie. But for South Australians, we'd have a great debate about which restaurant was going to, you know, be the best one to settle into for the day. And that meant that we were very good at making connections and often ferreting out a story. That's the only That's the only uh, theory I can give to the success of Australian uh, of Adelaide journalists across Australia. So but
0: is Canberra where your um, skill at networking was developed, do you think?
1: I did a whole webinar for Future Women yesterday on networking and I was asked about this. Well, you're a, uh,
0: you're a great networker. I mean, you know a Why lot of – Why do you of, say that, though? Well, you know a lot of people, but the reason you're very good at it is that you're – you keep in touch with people. that you, you constantly right. talk to people that you know because you like talking to people and you and you want to keep in touch with them, but that, that helps when you need some information, I mean, which is what Canberra journos had to do, I guess, right?
1: I, I think my friends would say I'm rubbish at keeping in touch with them. So I think maybe there's some truth in that in the sense I keep um, in touch with lots of people in a, a little bit. Um, but some of my close friends probably say I'm a bit rubbish at being able to be nailed down. I, I don't know. I, I really, the networking thing is, I hate the word. I feel like it, it diminishes the friendships that I have and the quality of the relationship. So I'm never really comfortable with it. I hate going to things where I feel like I'm being networked. I hate being given a business card. I've never had a business card that I've ever given to anybody or very rarely. Uh, so I, think it is about the different traits of, of journalists, and that is, I think, listening. I think listening to people and asking them stories about themselves is what I do, and if you listen to people, people, like, should tell you. You know, if they think you're <laughs> if you're genuinely interested, they'll tell you their story.
0: Yes. We, get, we can get back to the long lunch, maybe. Um, so you <laughs> ended up in Europe. That must have been, how did you get a European posting? You must have been very good in Canberra to get that.
1: Ah, well, no, you you may remember this. I went from television I got sacked as a television reporter, which I think is always very good to mention. Sacked. Uh I got sacked, yes, because Stan Grant was, you know, clearly a very talented media performer. And the then T V bosses at seven wanted to clean out the Canberra office and put Stan Grant in and I was collateral damage. I don't think Stan and I've ever even talked about that, but no hard feelings. It was a good thing. Went off to Europe. I went off to uh, Asia, came back into the job inside the newspapers at News Corp, which ah. was where I should have probably always been. I wasn't really a natural television reporter. In fact, I was pretty rubbish as a television reporter. So 10 or 7, 10 or 7 were, were probably not far wrong. So I then um, took up Aboriginal Affairs, which I thoroughly enjoyed at around. And from there made a bit of noise on a few different stories. And they sent, and I went to my boss and said, I really want to cover the Pauline Hanson campaign because an election campaign was coming up in 1998. And lovely Scott McKenzie said, yeah, I reckon we should do that. So News Corp group sent me on the road with Margot Kingston for eight weeks. And I traveled around Australia in that crazy election campaign, which has had books and documentaries and stuff written about it, one by Margot Kingston. Following the Hanson campaign, when she was moving um, into the lower house, is that what she was doing? No, into the Senate. She was moving into the Senate. She 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 got elected
0: to the lower house and uh, the libs dumped her and she became an independent, then lost the seat, right? I think. And then
1: she wanted to go into the upper house, that's right. And she was at risk of, uh, and it was a Beasley Howard, no, it wasn't Beasley Howard, Beasley Howard. And she was at risk of being. was really hard. She was at risk of being the of power, which is funny in hindsight. And there was some concern around that because she had policies, you know, flat tax policies and her immigration policies and all that kind of stuff. But she was electric in regional Australia, like electric. And again... Well, that was the big
0: campaign where protests gathered wherever she appeared, right? They had to have federal police and there was... It actually got quite uh, dangerous for her at various stages.
1: That's correct, and there were only two reporters full-time, um, Gay Alcorn, uh, who I know just got a promotion today, uh, and uh, Christine Jackman, and a couple of others came and went on the campaign, but Margot and I did the whole thing, and so I had some very memorable moments. I think I set myself some crazy target of, I don't know, maybe five or six front pages in the Daily Telegraph. I don't know whether I made that, but Cole Allen was editor of course, went on to become the legendary New York New York Post editor, and one of them was um, forget policies. I've got great legs. That was the front page story <laughs> of the. Um,
0: it sounds like Col Yeah,
1: and it was. <laughs> um, I mean, it wasn't the highlight of my journalism career, but it it really I was just on fire with breaking stories out of that campaign, and it meant that when the London posting came up, I was a. Pretty good shot at it, and um, ended up getting it, and then went off to London and did the same thing. So I've had a very tabloid, you know, journalistic career, as you know. So I'm never, you know, I'm never very, uh, you know, I, I'm not a media snob. I totally get the value of value of tabloid journalism from um, from the inside, and, and it is uh, it is a very intense career path. But it was wild, wild, There's was some wild stuff in London.
0: How'd you well. get on, How'd you get on with Pauline before we go to London?
1: Well, we, I don't know, it was quite famously at the time. Did Margo you ever put her on never,
0: the cover of the weekly, by the way?
1: No, she actually, well, she certainly had a big problem with me at one point. Oh, that's right. That's because I discovered that she'd had the affair with David Oldfield on that, on that campaign and wrote it. And it then became public years later, in a much bigger way, years later when David Oldfield wrote the book. Yeah, and he was the one who was sort of suggesting it, and so I wrote that story on that campaign. Anyway, it was I didn't get along that well with her in the end. She had a much closer relationship with uh, Margot Kingston, who was who was very captivated by that kind of Trump esque populism that just set crowds alight in regional Australia. Like Margot really wanted to understand that in a way that. I, I didn't really have time for. I was just busy being a tabloid filing and getting some sleep and getting up the next day and chasing her around. But um, it was a, in retrospect, watching populist politics in, in the Trump era, you know, take off. I, I, I can see that Hanson's connection and her, her way of expressing herself was just so unique, and it still is unique, and it still catches, catches this country in and, unsurprising and
0: Head of her time, really. I mean, when you do talk totally about and compare it to Donald Trump, I mean, it's a very valid comparison, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And just, um, you know, I want to make the other point, longevity. Like, we we all thought she was a Blom and Bishop style, you know, come and go, but she hasn't. And she still connects with um, Australians in a mm. way that no one else can. And there's something that, about that that we should
0: never dismiss yeah i had an unusual sit-down interview with her for the project at her house uh uh, west of brisbane uh on a bleedingly hot day and i arrived there and she'd taken clearly she was she had someone that was cohabiting with her in the house but all the pictures had been taken down the the place had been basically sterilized and we sat down and she only did it because she said she trusted me, and she didn't trust anyone else on the project. They'd been pestering <laughs> her, so she decided she'd do it with me. But it was an interesting, uh, an interesting chat. I mean, she has uh, dashed through your life a couple of times. Aside from that, that tour you did with her, because you know, infamously, you were deputy editor of the Sunday Telegraph no, when yeah. uh, when our friend Neil Breen, who was editor at the time splashed with Pauline or who a person he thought was Pauline Hanson on page one now I remember that clearly because I was writing a column for you for that paper Mm. um, and my phone rang on the morning of the Pauline Hanson story and it was Neil Breen who said why haven't you called me about our exclusive on Pauline Hanson and (laughs) I said Breenie because I don't think it's her Uh, Mm. and there was a silence from Neil and well, you can tell the story. You were in the middle of it all. How did that all happen?
1: Oh, yeah. It's funny. I haven't talked about this for a long time. And there was a period like 10 years where I didn't talk about anything else. Um it was a perfect storm like all those stuff up there. You know, it's not one thing that went wrong that day. Multiple things went wrong that day. Um and I think everyone had a role in the mistake, um, and Brini did. Yes, and Brini's a very dear friend. Did a lot to mitigate um, making that mistake. He he didn't do it in total isolation, uh, and he did. He did sweat it, uh, and he did put reporters on it, and he did you know hammer them about it. Uh, but I think it's probably a, and we still don't really know any of that. That was just, yeah, surreal. But I think it's. Did a you ever have any to, doubts that night? Yeah, that's a great question. It sort of happened in, in in too fast for me. I mean, you got to remember, you're producing a newspaper, and you know, he's sort of on that story and looking after it. I was looking after other stories, uh, and we had some other big ones at the time. I hope this is right, but my recollection is that we were doing – it was not long after Goldwyn Grett and Shari Markson was in Canberra and she was doing a ring around to see what support Malcolm Turnbull had on the backbench as leader and I was pretty engrossed in that story. Um and I, I guess I, my failing is I never questioned. I, I never went in and said, hang on, is this really her? And how do you know? I, it was just sort of presented and I just let him and them do their job. I never got involved. And as a deputy, that is pretty bad as an excuse. Um, and I don't think, it, certainly for the first 10 years after that, that's not something I I could have said. I think I can say that now with the benefit of considerable years, and Bruni and I both having worn that decision. I mean, we both wore it. I was the only was the only thing anyone asked me about when I took over Women's Weekly. Um, uh, but I think it's really a, a testament to how hard it is to be the editor of a Sunday newspaper. It's funny
0: though, and isn't it? When I look that, I would look at that and think that doesn't look like Pauline Hanson.
1: Yeah, and some people did, right? Um, some people did, but certainly at the time, and this is, this is what group think and momentum is such a damaging thing. And when you're putting your own things together, when you're leading anything, you've got to have people in your team that are prepared to say, I think you're wrong, right? You just have to have people say that to you. Uh, and you have to be prepared to hear it too. Uh, and, Certainly, my failing at that time, was I didn't, I didn't think that. I didn't think it wasn't her. And I, I knew enough about her background and story to not automatically be suspicious. Like, I, I just didn't occur to me to be automatically suspicious. So, no, I never, I never, I never questioned and it and I didn't really give it enough thought. That's really damning because I was his deputy and I should have been able to say, hey, can we just walk through this?
0: So, people, people listening to us, what was the actual story about? What was it? We all remember the the picture. I can't remember what the actual story was. So she was was dressed provocatively or something, right? Yeah, it was
1: just like, remember, she was going into another election. She was running for the New South Wales state election or something, I think, weirdly. And so there was some kind of, again, this is really tenuous in retrospect, there was some kind of, Theory that, you know, it was relevant because of the New South Wales election or whatever poll she was running for at the time. You remember she ran for everything? Yes. Ran for everything all the time. I was quite critical of
0: her just scooping up money that you get when you run as a candidate.
1: (laughs) Very lucrative thing to do, yes. Um, Which is always lost, you know, on her supporters. You know, like a lot of the stuff that Trump does is lost on the Trump supporters too. But uh, yeah, look, uh, I, I have no idea. I can't remember.
0: Was. It was probably as simple as Pauline as you've never seen her, is my memory of it. But I think one of the things that might have. Uh,
1: which, which, you know, media's changed so much. I mean, nothing about that would have been okay now. Nothing. <laughs> you know, the privacy, the nakedness. The, uh, and it wasn't you know, that the, long the, you know, ago. Like, yeah. Yeah, but I, mean, I think I was, one of the things
0: that was happening then was the paper was so on fire every Sunday. I mean, yeah, I I was yeah, really yeah. happy to be a columnist, but it was breaking big stories. I mean, you were in the middle too of the Kevin Rudd strip club story, of course.
1: Yeah, I'm much more comfortable talking about that. I was up to my neck in that one, yes. Um, I We were on fire, that's right. It was a very exciting time to be on that paper. We had a really hot team. We were breaking a lot of stories. Um, young reporters like Sherry were making their name. That was super young. Uh, it was hungry Glenn and Milne was just, getting
0: exclusive. Glenn You're Milne was, yeah, week. yeah,
1: yeah. And, yeah, that's right. And so, and, and you become, you know, again, I'm trying to make great columnists, a, a, pretty, a pretty great <laughs> columnist. And I'm, I'm trying to make excuses for, <laughs> for a, for a crap, um, for a very crap period in both of Brenny and my career. Uh, but, uh, that was what we were addicted to the rush of the breaking stories and, we got used to them and we hadn't stuck one up either. So I'm going to say a couple of things about life in media. If you haven't made a pretty big mistake at some point, um, then you're probably not living on that edge uh, that makes great yes. newspapers. Don't, and
0: don't ask me about the Corby family or refuse to speak about
1: <laughs> It's just it, – it, and I've seen young reporters do it and I've counseled them and I've just said, you know, if you're that hungry and you're that tenacious – you are going to make a mistake at some point because there's just a, it's just a volume game at that point. But um, there's much less appetite these days because of their defamation laws and media companies are nowhere, nowhere as well cashed up. But the one story—well,
0: um, bizarrely, we, you improved his image.
1: Yes, I did. Yes, I take full responsibility for um, Kevin Rudd being elected in <laughs> two thousand and seven. Uh, yes, we—you know—it was an extraordinary. story. he. He, um, no one really believed it, but he went to a strip club with Coe Allen and, um, and he got kicked out. And that was the story. But the better story, and Lucky Harris and I have spoken about it and promised each other that we wouldn't write a book about it unless we were co-authors. Um, this <laughs> means it will never happen. But what happened on either side of that story, because On my side of the story, uh, in the end, Glenn Mill was given the story. It was pulled together by multiple people, you know, getting the tip and then, and then, you know, testing it and proving it to be correct. Um, but Glenn wrote it in the end and he did that typically. Uh, journalistic thing of only sending the message, the, the, the questions to the Prime Minister's office or the opposition leader's office, office really late in the day, which I don't know that you can sort of get away with much these days, probably not as uh, acceptable behaviour. And that's because Prime Minister's offices and opposition leader offices smother everything and they will lie to smother. So, you know, you, you have to kind of use whatever tactics you've got in your kit bag. But we sent um, the questions to his office. It got to Lachlan Harris, um, who was his, his press Who was press sec and is a you know a, you know a brilliant strategic and political mind and was a pretty young back then, but um, was nevertheless very talented. And we just sat and waited, and you know didn't know what would happen. And then when I, I was standing outside Brini's office, and the fax machine the World. Now, this is in the days of machines. I hate sounding this old. But the machine Stops the World and out comes, I think, a two-page statement or two pages, probably the second page is empty. But it um, it essentially said that I was drunk and I didn't remember. I'm just reading it going, what is he just admitting to being drunk and going to a strip club and doesn't really remember what happened and then calling Therese to apologize. Like, it was just, He's amazing. So
0: he response, admitted it. But I mean, he he sends a fax. admitting yeah, it. It
1: happened. You're no, expecting a fax to
0: come out saying, oh, I was never there and it wasn't me.
1: Correct. Well, yeah, I thought we were going to get something much trickier than that. Um, now, whether Lockie knew then that it would be the best thing that ever happened to them, I, I'm oh, sure. I doubt
0: we, that. <laughs> I doubt that.
1: <laughs> I'm sure he'd try and get away with that, but. I then went to a dinner party at a friend's house and a bunch of Labour Party staffers, including, I think from memory, the former Chief of Staff to Mark Latham, Simon Banks, and had the paper in my hand, uh, with the front page, which I can't remember. I think I've got a copy of it here somewhere. And, uh, they all just went, oh God, wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> they were so pleased. They were all so pleased that okay, we went to the club that they didn't realise he had it in him. And I knew that. I knew then that that it was and by the time I went home that night I was listening to the news in the cab on the way home and yeah, he he was a hero. We all know so he's the got rest a, of history.
0: We all know he's got a volcanic volcanic temper. I mean Yeah. Did he not get on the phone and try and go above you and Neil Braid oh, yeah. and talk to the people oh, running yeah. news and say, Don't run it and all that sort of stuff? Well that
1: wasn't the only thing we did. We then did um the Sun Lives Affair. Where we um broke the story that he was trying to move the um the commemoration of Anzac Day, oh
0: um, yes, that in- was huge,
1: and that was huge, and that he did deny, and then we that found was channel seven the-
0: sunrise, one of the uh, yeah, sunrise. Is- to pretend it was dawn in Vietnam when it really was. Yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah. They wanted to hit the prime time <laughs> yeah, ratings right. at seven thirty or something and it wasn't the right time. It was a hilarious story, really, in retrospect. We made it sound very, very important, uh, back then. And uh it was huge that story. And called David Koch, um uh, who, you know, I thought would never forgive me and um and uh Mel Doyle, they came out, I was at home, you know, like getting ready for work and just did this full-blown denial that wouldn't happen and how dare we impugn their integrity as well and they would never do it. And, uh, Adam Boland was yelling and screaming at me and it, it blew up. And then, and then, and certainly, uh, Kevin did ring John Hardigan at that time and demand a full-blown apology before it went, before News He was worried about polling, which won't surprise anyone that knows Kevin well and he wanted their apologies to be issued before news poll went into market for the next fortnight's news poll. And it was pretty it was pretty willing. That was tough because Hardow's, you know, message to Greenie, it was relayed to me third hand was, righto, get your best off the bench, you need to prove this. Um, he had felt we hadn't proved the story. Uh, and we needed to give him irrefutable proof that what we said had happened, happened. Um, which fell to me and we proved it. And, uh, Preeny took the, took the proof, um, via the emails to the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. How'd you prove? Um, it? we had the emails between everybody to the Prime Minister. Know, he wasn't Prime Minister, then; the opposition leader. I think I've engaged Simon Bank. Simon Bank speakers in this quite quite well. I, I did go to Simon's wedding, by the way, so <laughs> we still and we still talk. So um yeah, we we proved it. And then it was a pretty I think I think Kevin got a very forthright phone call from the then uh, CEO of News Corp saying, Don't waste my time ever again on this stuff.
0: Do you miss that and, sort of um, adrenaline rush?
1: There was a time where I thought I did, but no, I don't, I don't miss it now. It requires, you have to have nerves that steel for that stuff. I, I was very grateful to be tucked in behind Neil Breen because he was so strong as a leader and formidable. I used to look at him when he would blow up, as he would say, I've just now I'm just blown up and think that's his one of his greatest strengths, that he could defend himself and his staff and his people. Um, it wasn't always seen that way, but he, he, I don't didn't know that I had that level of strength in, inside a big media outlet. Um, doesn't mean I didn't consider it a few times, but I never quite got there.
0: What do you make of uh, where women's magazines are at now? And when you were uh, editor-in-chief of the Weekly, what did you think of magazines like Women's Day and New Idea?
1: We interviewed the, one of the former senior staff of Women's Day yesterday, um, on Future Women because, um, she and the current editor or director of Women's Day, Lisa Sinclair, have just put out a book, How Not to Live Your Best Life. And we asked, uh, Claire Isaac that question and she, she made the point and it's very much the case when you're in that building that Women's Day is not to be taken too seriously. It's fun and escapism and, One of the things you can do is read that Jennifer Aniston's pregnant for the 14th time and think that that's real. No one thinks it's real. Everyone knows it's sort of like wishful thinking. Um, So that's how we view Women's Day. It it is an escape for um, an audience that doesn't have many opportunities to escape the day-to-day grind and want to have a laugh and it's affordable and it's... Picture-driven, etc. Um, I'm disappointed. I'm not disappointed. I'm sad about what happened to magazines in Australia. Uh, although I'm in two minds as to whether that could have been prevented. Some part of me thinks that in a different world with a different management structure, things might have gone better. But I don't know that I was close enough to the. The finer details of the business model, i.e. the distribution and the, you know, the rising costs and, um, the changing nature of the market to be too emphatic about that. Um, and I think if you look what's happening globally, the story is pretty consistent. I don't know that print is completely over. Uh, and I, I hold out some hope that there will be some really interesting, exciting things in that space. Particularly when you look at what's happening in book publishing, uh, you know that seems to be booming. And I know subscriptions in magazines are booming in COVID. So you could see a situation where there are some interesting brands and products out of the out of the ashes of all of the magazines that have closed in recent times. Well, and I, I, cross, I cross my fingers on that. I, I really don't.
0: Know. Well, I went and bought Women's Weekly today. Um,
1: and what did you think of it?
0: Uh, well, I haven't read it yet, but I've uh, I've got it's it here, and I'm going to cook the Jamie Oliver <laughs> recipe. Tell me about Future Women.
1: Well, Future Women began as a exercise in positioning uh, a digital brand to take advantage of the slowing down of people buying subscription magazines, and I took the view that eventually women would start to pay for content in a digital and we launched with – I certainly tried to have a low-key launch. I didn't want to, I didn't want a big splash because I wanted to test and learn and that's always a bit tricky when you've you know, worked in every media outlet to be too low-key because people are interested in what you're doing. But we tested some different content ideas. We wrote stories in a way that I would have written them previously, put them online, put up a paywall. And then knowing that that would be pretty slow, knowing there'd be crickets initially. Uh, but the interesting thing that happened, and we picked up this quite quickly, thankfully, is that I worked out that the audience was doing exactly the same things it was doing when it was buying magazines. So you go out and buy a magazine, as you've done, you invest $8 or, in our case, it's a dollar a week, and you'd have every intention to read it. And then you wouldn't because you're too busy and because it would require you to sit down and and digitally go on and look at switchwomen.com and then call it up and sit there and read it. People weren't doing it and they were feeling guilty about it. So they were paying to feel guilty about something. So it's not a really good equation and you're going to lose them pretty quickly. So we then went, right, well, that is, I'm not going to sit around watching that happen on magazines and then watch it happening in the digital space. So what is it that we can offer an audience that is relevant to their lives? And I think we've landed in a pretty good place and I think the market continues to shift. Um, there's a situation now we're seeing overseas where people are paying more for a newsletter that's relevant to their life than they're paying for their Netflix subscription. So we do newsletters, we do podcasts, we do um, we a members-only Facebook group where we do pretty much everyone. We interview, last night we interviewed Catherine Murphy from The Guardian. Um, the week before we interviewed Nick Bryant I'm from the BBC out of New York. Um, we've interviewed Michael Turnbull. We've interviewed Kat Karen Phelps. We've interviewed Carrie Chance. We're interviewing Norman Swan. You know, like it's quite extensive content and interview, uh, interviewing. And then we've started to really look at what's happening to professional women right now with the, you know, recession that is underway. And we're seeing more of our members start to feel the pressure on their jobs. And their mortgages and their budgets, etc. So we're starting to really develop, um, some content ideas around the jobs place and it, it's starting to come together. Um, I don't want to sound too confident because I don't think anyone in any part of the economy right now, you know, uh, is feeling super confident about what can happen because we didn't see COVID, did we? So, but it, but that was the way I started out wanting to position a brand that could be appealing to professional women as they rethought their three or four magazines a month that they previously bought. Also, recognizing that there were a lot of conversations and stories being reported that were very relevant to women, but weren't really being reported from a from a female perspective, um, from a professional female perspective, uh, and. I thought eventually if we're going to have independent media and independent content then we had to find a revenue model that wasn't dependent on advertising clients and that the only way to do that was subscription or membership we call it a membership but you know the Australian Financial Review calls it a subscription and I am hesitant to say that I've 100% proven that we're only 2 years old but I feel like we're in a good place
0: I hope it's a raging success. Helen McCabe's been fabulous to catch up. Thanks a lot. Always good to you. Helen McCabe joins other talented Australians telling the background to their careers, including Kerry-Ann Kenley and Rita Panahi.